again, counted a tremendous privilege to be here. And uh, it's only because of God's mercy to me that I could possibly have anything to share with you. I want to just, just kind of do some talking here in our first session this morning and kind of set the groundwork for what I have to share after the break. Now, Brother Leon asked me to share a story about our cows. And um, <clears throat> we have about 12 dairy farmers in our church community, and I know that's unusual, but hey, dairy farming ain't that bad. Um, my children say, you mean I've got a milk? You get the milk. Some people can't get out to bed, you know. And you need to tell your boys that you make half of your money before breakfast and that you get to go home and eat at Mama's. And um, we enjoyed our work. We feel privileged to have been given the privilege of having a farm. In December of 2014, I think I was away and I came home and I noticed a fresh cow didn't look good. She had that look of death in her eye. And I thought maybe she had a twisted stomach and those of you who are dairy farmers know what that means. Displaced abomasin. And um, <clears throat> should have shot her. But you know, I had mercy on you. know, your cow is your ATM machine and you need to treat them nice. And um, over the Christmas, getting close to the Christmas holidays, noticed one after another, cows, ears would hang down and their breath was just wheezing and gasping. And we were at a loss. We talked to the veterinarian and the veterinarian lives about 70 miles away and I think he did come one time and we started treating for a, a gross and grievous respiratory disease. And of course, you, if you load your cows up with antibiotics, you can't sell the milk. And uh, so we bought expensive uh, synthetic antibiotics where we could milk and treat them at the same time and to no avail. And uh, we finally took a carcass to the lab, the Clemson University lab, and it was Christmas time and they were taking their holidays. And I just couldn't really stand, you know, cows are your friends, they're family, and I just couldn't really stand this anymore. And it was Christmas time and New Year's Day and no results. We didn't know what was going on. And so we were still shooting up drugs and hoping that it was some respiratory thing. Not only, we soon had 500 sick animals around the place. And I had to go off and teach Bible school. And I tried not to worry about it. And I knew that I was saddling my wife and my boys with a heavy burden. When our source of income was spinning hopelessly out of control. We was up to about a dozen cows had died and we were starting with the miscarriage and low production. We prayed and then I started finding out that the children at Bible school were praying and I got a note from the Island Creek congregation, and they were praying for our cows. And you know, cows are worthy of prayer. They really are. <clears throat> and one day the lab reports did come back. It took them so long because of the holidays. Husk. Have you ever heard of husk? Okay. 
And in layman's terms, it's a form of lung worms. And we worm our cattle often, but it was a warm winter, and these parasites live in the lungs. They lay eggs in the uh, trachea. Cow starts coughing, spit the eggs up in the grass, and we have a grass-based dairy. And in no time at all, we went from one sick cow to hundreds of sick cows. And, of course, when we knew what we were treating and, and we bought a train load of Epronex and things started to turn around. We lost, I think, 19 cows and some calves and some of them we were able to pull back from the, the brink. But those cows never did do very good after that. And so, you know, if you have chickens in seven weeks, you can get rid of that flock and start over. If you have pigs, I think it's about six months. If you have dairy cows, you're looking at about an 18 months to two year recovery from a, a disaster like that. But through it all, God was good. We got an anonymous check in the mail from some brother. I don't know who he was, but he sold cows and his <clears throat> sale barn and sent the check to us. We were humbled. Uh, they wanted to take an offering up for us at Bible school and I wouldn't let them. I, but anyway, I was humbled that these young people cared about this old dude, their teacher, you know. But we got through that. It was a learning lesson for my boys. It was a learning lesson for me. We can become self-dependent. Life is good, and we're scientific people. We're good farmers. But um, <clears throat> cows can get sick and die, and it can become very troublesome. But I thank God for his goodness. For the rest of this period, I want to talk about developing or maintaining or starting a good church culture. And um, <clears throat> for those of you that weren't here last night, I'm not going to go back and explain this. <clears throat> I don't have time. All of us have a church culture. <clears throat> if you came from a Baptist community, you have a church culture. If you came from an Amish background, you have a church culture. You have a church culture here in Gladys, Virginia that's similar but a bit different from the church culture we have at Barnwell and Edisto. I want to commend those of you who stood last night and have dedicated yourself to a life of service to others and a service to the church. My heart was so blessed to see all these young people, middle-aged people, and older people get up and recommit themselves to service. This is huge. Parents, nudge your children towards service. We're too quick to encourage our children to go into debt and to, to get that job and tie themselves down. And there again, we can have a vision for how to grow our business, but no vision for how to grow the church. Change that. Uh, I cannot tell you the blessings that I had for working for $25 a month for many years <coughs> and um, I wouldn't trade. When I came back from service my peers were buying their farms. Until I got to buy my first farm my peers were buying their second farm. But it doesn't matter. I had to learn to not compare what God had asked me to do with God God may have asked them to do. 
Comparison is the biggest robber of joy. Be content with what God has asked of you. Young people, there's plenty of time to go into debt. When you get back from service, there's still plenty of time to go into debt. Don't rush into it. Bible school. I think in the Anabaptist movement, uh, Bible schools have been going for almost 100 years now. Um, EMC, EMU now, and Goshen, and so these started out as Bible schools. Somebody had a vision for teaching and training, and uh, they've morphed into secular universities for the most part. But then the um, burning desire in the conservative conference in the 50s, and Rosedale was started, and then later all these other ones have propped up. I think it's such a wonderful opportunity that you can set aside six weeks or six months of your life and dedicate it to some special training. I know that there's this joke about if you go to SMBI or Heritage or Maranatha that you're going to get paired off. Please don't see it that way. But where else is a better place to meet young people? Four of our five children met their significant others in Bible school. I was thrilled. But I'm satisfied beyond a shadow of a doubt that's not what they went there for. Three of them met their spouses, potential spouse there, and then went away in service and came back and got married. They put that first. Um, was that their choice? Mom and Dad didn't give them much of a choice. But they were happy and glad to do it, and I, Grace and I was so honored. I used to tell Mr. Galen the, um, Schrock, the Bible school administrator, that we need to paint a big sign across the door uh, at the entrance of the Bible school, you know, like the warning on the pack of cigarettes. Maybe you don't know what that is, but uh, we used to know what cigarettes were years ago. It was, it's not as fashionable as it used to be. But we need to make a sign that says warning. Bible school makes members of the opposite sex more attractive than they really are. And uh, we haven't got that sign up yet, but Brother Sam, it's kind of true, isn't it? Where are you at? <laughs> isn't that kind of true? <laughs> the hothouse environment and everybody's in their best behavior and they got the nice clothes on. They don't smell like the barnyard. I'm sure that some of you know Brother Dan Schrock. I don't know him well, but he had revival meetings at Heritage Bible School. and He told me that he was in southern Ontario for a youth weekend, and he said there was between three and 400 young people at that youth weekend. Three of them came to Maranatha. None of them came to Heritage. I just think that's a tragedy. Maybe the Ontario people need to have a vision for a Bible school in Ontario so we can send our people up there, you know, and get that new cultural experience. Um, last year there was, I think, half a dozen or eight or so Ontario people in North Georgia. <clears throat> That's not the issue. It's available. It's cheap. And it's a good growing experience. I met God at Rosedale. 
Unfortunately, Rosedale has left God, so to speak. But it was there that I had Walter Beachy and Elmer Janzi and these old, they're old men now, one, some have passed away. They gave, helped me find a faith of my own. It wasn't because of my dad said so. It wasn't because the preacher said so or the bishop said so. I found a faith for my own. And I thank God for it. Church attendance. I don't know what your culture is here, but once a culture is developed and ingrained, it's difficult. Uh, we had the privilege of about 44 years ago of starting over fresh. And so <clears throat> my dad and Uncle Howard Brubaker, who was the bishop at the time, were able to kind of set some policies and we kind of fumbled along the way. When we have Wednesday night service, everybody's there. When we have Sunday morning service, everybody's there. When we have Sunday evening service or a special service, everybody's there, unless you're infirm or crippled or delivering a calf. And I know that that's maybe a little idealistic, but I think it's a good goal. Uh, we're an agrarian people. We're not shift workers. Um, and you all work more with um, the public and, and you have shift work or night jobs and things like that. I understand that. But when people come to our community and consider moving in, and <clears throat> they should talk to the ministry. I think most of them do. We just tell them, if you want to be part of our group, we expect loyal church attendance. And so we've cut out two Wednesday nights a month where the youth do things or other things instead of a Wednesday night service. We've cut back uh, to three, two Sunday night services so people cannot accuse us of being overbooked. But we expect everybody to be there. And praise God, I want to commend those people. It's not because the ministry's that good. It's that they've caught that spirit. And um, I want to recommend that to you, to be diligent in your church attendance. Your children know what your value are. They know that if a, what you decide to stay home for and they know what you decide to go to church for, you're not fooling your children. Membership. This has become a very divisive topic in um, Anabaptist circles. A lot of churches, uh, even very conservative churches, has kind of <coughs> moved to the new normal. And I don't know if you all have outback steakhouses in this part of the country. Do you know what an outback steakhouse is? Yeah, Brother Sam does. Is it good? Okay. I was heading west on I-20 out of Augusta one time, and I saw this big billboard that says, The Outback Steakhouse, no rules, just right. You know there's a lot of Anabaptist churches could adopt that motto too, no rules, just right. I'm going to tell you, don't work. We're not all mature. We need each other. And I'm going to talk about brotherhood after a bit. Membership. I'm a believer in it. 
I've had my times of doubt. I know that we need to give people coming into the church room. Sometimes I feel like maybe we've got the corrals too tight. It's not easy for the leadership to know how to be reasonable and fair to someone who has no history of Christian living and not allow somebody who has many generations of Anabaptist or Christian living to say, well, you're letting them do so and so, why can't I? Well, that is immature. I'm sorry, it's immature. Don't compare yourself with the lowest common denominator. Why I need the church. And I have seven things here. Number one, I need the fellowship. I need to learn from you. Number two, I need the teaching. I am not wise or discerning enough to make it on my own. Number three, I need something to do. We are not an island. We all need to feel loved. We need to feel needed. And we need to be able to make a contribution to the whole. Not what can be done for me alone. Number four, I need to feel that sense of belonging, not unlike belonging to our birth or adoptive families. We need to belong to be part of something bigger than just ourselves. Number five, I need the stabling factor that it provides. It also helps give us spiritual security and stability. Number six, I need accountability. We need the help that comes from being accountable and submitting to each other. And number seven, I need the blessing that comes from helping others and benefiting from their help to me. It helps to keep us humble, useful, and helps to level and find common ground in the brotherhood. I want to tell you a little story, if I can, to illustrate. My wife has a friend, my very dear friend, she's 32 years old, and it doesn't make any difference. But I'm going to tell you she's African-American because you can um, figure that out when she was born in Queens or Brooklyn, I believe. Ashley started out as a fresh air child, and she would, as a six-year-old, she'd go into upstate New York and stay with the same family year after year. And because her biological mother didn't want her and the home situation was terrible, at the, when she was 12 years old and was at the end of the fresh air program, she called her mom to ask if she could stay with the family in upstate New York and her mom screamed at her. She hung up the phone and never got on the bus. And this a family kind of adopted her and took her in as a child. They didn't adopt her because her mother didn't release her. She never changed her last name. And they helped her become a Christian. They offered her a lot. The mother took an interest in her and taught her to sew and to do the many things that you mothers teach your daughters. 
she went to a Christian high school in upstate New York and um, <clears throat> ended up in Delaware some years later as a young single lady and taught school for quite a few years and then came to our community. Ashley is the kind of girl who just, you can't be with her very long and not like her. But she's packed down underneath all this outgoing, friendly persona, so many hurts and so many rejections. Here she is, 32 years old, the youngest of her biological you know, adoptive siblings from upstate New York. They've all flown the coop but her. She's a conservative Mennonite. The one brother is a community church fellow, but his mantra is anti-Mennonite. And he will be happy when Ashley also adopts his faith. And it's been a struggle for her. There's one overriding thing that Ashley wants. She wants to belong. She's not a Yoder or a Zare or a heat wall. She just wants to belong somewhere. Her real mama don't want her. The mother who raised her through her teen years died in November. And her siblings are out in the world and her birth siblings are estranged. Can't I just belong to somebody? And her heart is broken. And that carries over into church. That's one thing she does. She belongs to a church brotherhood. And if you could just see the importance of belonging to a family, it is just as important to belong to your spiritual family. I'm convinced it is. Don't put your church letter or your membership in your pocket and just coast along and be unconnected and untied in. Put your energies into a group of people where you can make a contribution and where others can make a contribution to you. Some things that I think we've done well. I think we as an Anabaptist people are really have done well with this whole brotherhood thing. We're probably the envy of the evangelical church community. Where else do we have barn buildings and disaster relief things and meals on wheels for pregnant mothers or, expect, or birth mothers? Or the things we do for each other, like family, and we've always done it that way. I had a Baptist boy working for me, and he was always telling Mennonite jokes. And uh, he looked like Hulk Hogan, if that means he was a great big man, and he had blonde hair down to his shoulders and a cigarette always dangling on his lip, and he was always telling Mennonite jokes. I told uh, Stephen Steele, you can work here under one condition. You know what I believe, and if I ever catch you trying to uh, corrupt my boys or teaching them things that you know that I don't stand for, you have one strike, not three, one strike. And I think he always honored that. But I got tired of his Mennonite jokes. <clears throat> I just kind of smoldered underneath, you know. And one day the neighbors 
needed to help to build their house, and it was announced in our church, we're going to Ivan's Creek Seth to help build his house. And I took Stephen still along. And when he saw how everybody quit their job for the day and went and helped the brother in the church put up the studs and the sheeting and the shingles, and the ladies brought all this food and fried chicken and whatever, and he was invited to eat and participate, and everybody enjoyed it. And we went home from chores that evening, and he said, you know, I learned something today. He said, when you're a Baptist and you have trouble, you're on your own. But you Mennonites look out for each other. That's a biblical thing. It's not a Mennonite thing. And so I want to encourage that. Well, let's talk about the teapot. I want to continue a little illustration that is carrying on from last night. And this has to do with family devotions. The teapot for this morning's purposes represents mom and dad, the little home unit, you know, the, the protection, the shelter of mom and dad. The tea bag represents God's word. And the hot water is your children. Being exposed to God's word over and over again in the confines of mom and dad's little home. And so I'm going to pour the children into the teapot here, into mom and dad, and then we'll go on to some other things and check on it later. I hope you don't feel that I've chastised you this morning. I just shared a burden of my heart for the church of uh, getting old enough to see so much disappointment in church life. And it doesn't need to be that way. I just want to bless you all and encourage you all to press on, to pull together and work together for the glory of God and the influence and the reputation in your local community. May God bless you. Well, thanks again for your attention. Um, the, what I want to share for the rest of the morning is the burden of my heart. and It has to do with families and the change of families that I've seen in the last 50 years some of it good and some of it bad. But I want to say that if I came here just this morning, if I would have driven the almost 400 miles up here and back and just went home, it would have been worth it to me. That's how I feel about it. In Genesis chapter 18 verse 19 for I know him I read this verse the other evening for I know him that he will command his children and his household after him and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment or what is right and just 
that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Uh, some years ago, I heard a, a sermon by Mr. Buck Hatch, and he was the, one of the professors at uh, Columbia International University, and he had a quote that went like this, Lo, children are a burden from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his way of testing us. Unhappy is the man who hears his neighbor ask of him, Do all these kids belong to you? Some years ago, I went <coughs> to a seminar on no-till and conservation tillage and those kind of things, and I looked at all the different workshops and the things that looked interesting, and I signed up for the quail seminar. When I was a little boy, I used to raise pheasants and quail, and I dabbled in a lot of strange things, but I've always liked quail. You know, you hear that little rooster in the spring and the morning standing on a fence post and whistle Bob White, that just stirs your hearts, you know? So I went to the quail seminar, and they was wanting to know why there's a tremendous demise in quail populations in the southeast since the 1960s. And it was very interesting how they did their study. And so what they did, they took quail eggs and had them in the incubator, and just before they hatched, they had these college students or interns that would start to act like mama quail. And they would chirp and whisper to the quail, and then when they hatched, they would stay with them in the brooder uh, under the heat, and for 15 hours a day, they talked to these little quail. And after five days, these quail thought that, that student was their mama. And they would take their little birds, and they'd go out into the cotton fields, and, and the little, they could whistle, or they knew the signal, and the little birds would just follow them and so they studied and they watched and they did, uh, what did they eat? And they did fecal samples and they weighed them and they checked their weight gain and then they would take them out and they would spray over top of them and count and see if that did anything. And <clears throat> they count them before they sprayed and during their spray. And, and so was it the spray that was killing the birds? What was it? They call that imprinting, that thing of making a little bird think some college student is their mama. Well, raising children is so much the same way. It's imprinting and imprinting, imprinting, training our little children over and over again to be in whose likeness, ours or God's. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, you know how it starts. Follow me as I follow Christ. Imprint your children as you follow Christ. And yes, mistakes will be made. We know that. <clears throat> Is there a proven and surefire way or approach that makes fail-proof or guarantees healthy, Christian, adaptable children? No, there isn't. There are many forms and child, styles of child rearing, some very effective and some very destructive. Well, let's talk about a few of the different ways. <clears throat> One is shame, and that was something that we observed up north amongst the uh, Native American people. If they disapproved of a child's behavior, they shamed them. 
that's not the Hopi way. Or you could say, that's not the Zare way, and you embarrass them. And they learn to conform to doing it the Zare way. Well, then there's the passive. Disconnected, uninvolved. Don't worry, your children will turn out just like the neighbors. Do you all know what a brat is? What's a brat? Paul? All right. A brat is a child who acts like yours but belongs to the neighbors. <laughs> well, then there's the authoritarian approach. Rigid, barking orders, non-sympathetic, not sensitive to the situation or the personality. Then there's the smothering parent. <clears throat> When I went to the first grade in school at Dayton Elementary over there in Harrisonburg area, we was afraid. This was our first day of school and Mrs. Garber was our teacher and she was kind of doing the roll call and settling us all in and we heard this kicking and screaming out in the hall and it coming closer and closer. Finally, bam, on the door and the door opened and this mother drugged this little boy in by his foot and Mrs. Garber went over and, and, and wrestled him away from his mom and she eased back out the door and he laid there kicking and screaming. His name was Larry Fomer. I don't know if he was foaming at the mouth or not, but he was one dysfunctional child. Boy, did we ever, us first graders, did we ever get awakened to a new form of child training. And so my brother Don, he was in the sixth grade, and I, when, on the way home, I said, Don, you wouldn't believe this boy that came into my class. He was something. He said, was his last name Fomer? I said, yeah. Well, his brother's in my class. <laughs> well, we have the demanding type. Unrealistic expectations to achieve goals that mom and dad never could achieve. And that's often uh, lived out in trying to make your children excel in sports or education or earning a, a high potential, high paid job. You know, we don't want you to be locked in this lower life form like we were. And the expectations are so high, it crushes the child. Status seeking, it's similar to the demanding type. <clears throat> Parents set unrealistic goals, high standards that their children are unattainable to meet. And then when these, when these standards are set high, the children are almost always doomed for failure and the damage is often irreversible. They carry that thing through adult life where I never could please my dad, I never could please my mom, and they're warped. We got, Grace and I got called to a family's home one time and they was having trouble with their little boy. Guy was in first grade and she sent sterile wipes for him to wipe his hands before he'd eat his lunch. And he had to have straight A's and here he was in the first grade and he was on Prozac. I understand after I met in the home and saw how they were raising that boy and now he's a high school senior, and he still carries that damage. 
there probably are many different successful ways to raise godly children, just as there are many personality types. Remember, we are imprinting to help our children become three things. God-honoring, to develop a God-consciousness. Number two, to be obedient to God's will and His plan for their lives. Number three, to be productive, useful, servant-minded citizens while on this earth. And it's a shame when God's people raise children who are a bane to society. One parent has training wheels. Another runs along beside the bicycle and gives it a shove. One teaches swimming by many accessories and flotation devices. Some like my late Uncle Orn. He just chucked them off at the end of the diving board. My mom was not impressed. But it seemed to work. Perfection and reality. Gideon was our firstborn, and looking back, he was an obedient and respectful boy. He was born wound up, and silos and shed roofs were for climbing. And if the stove was hot or the paint was wet, he needed to make sure for himself. And as an idealistic young father, I was determined to raise a good boy. We, or I, wore his little behind out. But after the fifth one, I think we learned that not every situation is a national disaster, and this may not be the hill that you want to die on. And you need to decide if the incident was immaturity, rebellion, or disobedience. There is a difference. I talked to you all the other evening about restitution in my children's class. Restitution is huge in raising children. It's a release. It brings closure and healing and the ability to regain one's dignity. I have seldom, I told you this, I have seldom if ever been tempted to repeat the same offense twice, no matter how pleasurable that offense was, when I have needed to make full re restitution. Sometimes in the weeks before Gideon was killed, the Spirit of God moved in me to tell me that I, in my misguided zeal and idealistic goals, had given him too many weapons, and he forgave me. I have no regrets. My first point is obedience. There's over 500 verses in Scripture that speak of the importance of being obedient to authority figures in your life. And it starts with your parents and then goes to your teachers and church leaders. And church leaders need their lines of authority too. A church leader out of control is no better than a brat. You know what a brat is. Proverbs 30:17 is very scary. The eye that mocks a father that scorns obedience to his mother will be plucked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the buzzards. That don't sound good at all. We've all been there. We all deserve, I think. I was disobedient to my parents. If a child doesn't learn obedience at an early age, he will be difficult 
and miserable till they do. It's basic to all training. Obedience. That's the first thing you need to teach your child. And most of this training should take place before their memory of it ever develops. And teaching can only happen to those who are first trained. Ask any school teacher. People who haven't learned to obey will most certainly have trouble with authority the rest of their lives. Young children don't need to know why. They need to obey mom and dad because mom and dad said so. But teenagers need answers. Give them good and honest answers. 1 Samuel 15, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience is no small things in God's sight. Neither should it be disobedience be tolerated in your home. And along with that, I'd like to suggest give your children the gift of language. I put a plug in the other night for teaching reading, and, and I think all of you are concerned about that. Uh, we have moved into the YouTube generation where you don't need to read, but I still think you need to read. Give your children the gift of language. The language we use tells us more about ourselves than we may want to admit. And in Luke chapter 6 and in Matthew 12, we have the same verses. Out of what is in your heart, in our mouth, will display its depravity of a heart washed in the blood of the Lamb. You can be depraved or you can have your heart washed, but the evidence comes out of your mouth. I want to read you a little clipping that I got out of a farm magazine that inspired me. Give your children an excellent vocabulary. Now this may seem odd, but it will give your children a step up on any crowd and will navigate them away from the street gang whose language consists of yo dude and profanity. Teachers will be impressed with your children and will treat them as though they are intelligent. Trust me, you want your teachers to think that they are intelligent. It saves time trying to convince them of that at parent-teacher's conference. Now, actually, vocabulary gives the child an ability to think more clearly and to be able to comprehend more complex problems. Reading skills and comprehension will also be improved. Vocabulary teaching starts with infants. Now, some parents talk baby talk to their little ones. Sometimes it gets so bad that you have a hard time distinguishing what is the parents are saying, let alone understanding this child. And a child learns to speak by imitation. And if the child doesn't hear the word properly, he struggles to learn the correct pronunciation and meaning. Some children are so impaired by their parents' baby talk that they require a speech therapist when they get to kindergarten. You can talk sweetly to your babies, but make sure every word is pronounced correctly. Give your child the gift of language. Teach your children to assume responsibility after they have for their choices and actions. No, everything isn't your child's fault. But if your child thinks it is someone else's fault, then he's powerless to change the effects 
or change the outcome of things in his life. Life should be a teacher. We learn from our mistakes. We need to learn to fix them and hopefully we'll not make the same mistakes over and over again. You must never let your child think that he's a victim. Victims are absolved or removed from any responsibility in their life. They are robbed of the great blessing of overcoming a challenge and the self-test that results from solving a problem on their own. I want to read you a, a little article that was in our local paper. This lady writes in, My son was born, and I had no experience as a parent, much less with a child with special needs. I grieved for three days over the loss of that perfect baby. And I thought I was going to have. And then I noticed that he nursed, slept, and wet his diapers and cried just like every other baby that I had ever seen. I suddenly realized that he had more in common with other children than not. And that burst of insight caused my husband and me to stop the pity party and dedicate ourselves to raising a caring, responsible adult. Unfortunately, our local public school system thought it would help. We were told by the administrators and school psychologists and teachers that we should trust the experts to know what is best for our child. It turned out, however, that what they had in mind was to treat our son if he was incapable rather than capable. One day, the special education teacher called our son called me to tell us that our son had come to school on the field trip day without his signed permission form. And would I give permission over the phone so he could go, she asked. No, I wouldn't. But he wants to go, she said, and he forgot his form. I told her I understood what she was saying. It was obvious, however, that she didn't understand why I would not give permission that she was seeking. I asked her, did you give Robbie the form? Yes, she said. And did you tell him to get it signed? Yes, but. So he did not do what you told him to do? Yes, but. Well then, I said, I'll just bet he remembers next time. The teacher was flabbergasted. My child with an IQ of 41 never again forgot for me to sign a required form. Another time he came home and tried out on me some ugly four-letter words that he'd learned from a boy on the school bus. I was not amused. And I told him that if dirty words was in his mouth, we needed to wash it out with soap to get it clean. And he went to school the next day and told the teacher what I had done. Well, she sent word that I was not to discipline my child in that manner. And I sent word back to her to please mind her own business. She never again tried to correct my discipline methods again. My son never ordered an, uttered another four-letter word in my presence. And now it occurs to me that if my disabled child, who is now a terrific young man with a high-paying, no, with a paying job, can learn these lessons, shouldn't supposedly gifted children be able to master them as well? He had Down syndrome. 
I next want to shift into family devotions. But before I do that, I want to tell you, I know that you are not farmers anymore. We're not a church of farmers like our church is. And scheduling is difficult. But please try to have mealtime, some mealtimes together. I'd like to read you something that I got out of a dairy magazine. Before I married, this lady is married a dairy farmer, I promised I would never do two things. First, live in eastern Colorado. Second, marry a dairy farmer. But you guessed it, I did both. Before we were married, my farmer assured me the dairy smelled like money. I'm convinced now more than ever that he is right. It smells like money. It smells like money coming and more money going. And I must admit that my dairy farmer is worth the stink and the green rubber boots that I was so opposed to. Our family owns and operates a dairy in eastern Colorado. We milk a thousand cows and farm 1,200 acres of hay, grain, and corn. Our dairy is a third generation family dairy and my boys have dreams of being the fourth generation. And we are in the business of producing milk raising dairy cattle, but we really are in the business of raising and producing boys. Farm families spend more time together than most families, although it is totally different kind of time spent together. We say we are together when we wave to each other as we pass in the fields. Date night consists of my husband dropping me off at the grocery store while he runs to the parts and supply stores. The most common father-son activity is called sorting cows. The conversation goes something like this. Let that big black one go, not that black one. And we count all these activities as being together. You've got to take what you can get. Our schedule is so hectic that that's why I'm so passionate about mealtimes. It's one of the few times during the day when we stop and take time to really be together. Most of the time we sit down to eat only to find a cow is calving, the cows are out, a tractor is stuck. Regularly a salesman rings the doorbell during lunch. I haven't figured out if he comes more often to sell us something or to get a bite of lunch. However hectic it is, we still make it an effort to have meals together and it's worth every effort. I like mealtime to be a quality time to learn more about each other's day, and we have serious discussions about life. It's there where we were informed my oldest son wants to be a vet, my middle child wants to be an engineer, and my youngest wants to be a snow cone maker. We have teaching and learning moments at mealtime. One dinner conversation resulted into us getting out all the salt and pepper shakers so we could teach our fourth grade football player about the different positions of the game of football. It was salt versus pepper. Most often we share lots of giggles during meals. My three-year-old announced during dinner that he was not getting married Never, ever, and he would never, ever kiss a girl. I love the memories that are made and the conversations we have as we make mealtime a priority. 
I'm equally passionate about having something yummy for my family once they get to the table. Food is my love language, and I always hope that my boys feel the love in every bite. And it's important to me that the food I serve is delicious, balanced, and fun. Because I live on a dairy, I make a point of adding dairy products to every... Right, that's, that's a sales pitch, let's skip that. <clears throat> Farm life creates so many unknowns concerning mealtime. You never know when you're going to get to town to buy more groceries, and you never know how many people will actually show up for dinner. And you never, ever know what time it's going to be. And although I learned I need my family to come home, all I have to do is mop the floors or make cookies. Life is crazy like that. But I wouldn't miss it. I wouldn't miss out on the benefits of being together at the table. And you never know. You might just find out that your middle child has made a career change. He now wants to be a bear hunter. Um, we raised a family of boys, and Grace fed those boys. Boys need to eat. They really do. And if a mama feeds her boys, she's got them for the rest of their life. Those boys still come into our house and eat all of our food. I think she's kind of proud of it. Give your children the gift of family devotions. Here's mom and dad. The teapot represents God's word. The hot water is your children steeped in that environment. And look at this. Sorry, I can't pour with that hand. See that color? That was clear water I put in there. When you immerse your children, and, and it's in the useful cup too, it's not the pretty cup. You immerse your children in God's Word day after day after day. It will make a difference for eternity. Give your family a gift of daily time together with God. It should be the anchor to which each day holds to. Morning or evening, you take your pick. Family devotions is never convenient. It's a discipline, and there will always be reasons not to have it. It's a challenge. I know, a, I know a, a brother that's older than me, and he talked about when his children became teenagers, and this one worked here, and this one worked there, and, and he just didn't know when they was going to ever have family devotion. So he's got his family together, and he said, what if we would get up at 5 o'clock, all of us, and have devotions? And then those that need to go to work can go to work and eat their breakfast. And those that want to go back to bed can go back to bed. And you don't have to come to family devotions dressed for the day. You have to be modest. And it worked for them. Mom and dad made a plan that worked for them. I'm going to tell you, those of you who are my age know the challenges of having anybody home. There's youth night and this night. and Mornings work best for us. But it's not going to work if you don't make a plan. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, a great while before day, he went to a solitary place and prayed. Psalm 5, 3 and 4. The psalmist talks about getting up early in the morning and meeting God. 
John chapter 4, verse 23. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. I told you that the other night. In all other religions, people are looking for a God to worship. But in the Christian faith, God is looking for me and you in a time when we can worship him. Be there. Meet him. Be there for that time. Try to keep family devotions from being boring. Ask the children questions. Read in a more flowable translation if you care to. Read Bible stories and good missionary biographies. <laughs> Spend some time singing uh, missionary biographies. Grace started buying these uh, Youth with a Mission, about an eighth grade level biography, and our children got to be preteen. We started, we read about 40 of them, everybody from Elizabeth Elliot to who knows. Wonderful Bible, I mean, stories of godly people and the challenges they met in missions and service. And she now loans them out to our children and the other church ladies. She's the librarian, I guess. Spend some time singing. It doesn't need to sound like angels or altar of praise or your all's quartet here. It's just your family learning to worship a God who is seeking those who will worship them. And I know if you like the soggy bottom boys in Southern Gospel, I guess go for it. That's not my taste, but sing with your family. I remember going to my grandfather Ralph's. Grace and I was living in Canada at the time, and we needed to stop in Harrisonburg. And, and we spent the night with my grandparents and of course, my grandmother was deaf, and so she always read the Bible out loud so she could get something out of it. And then grandfather prayed, and, and he started praying this thing and that thing, and then he prayed for the grandchildren that were kicking against the pricks. And I did a quick retrospect of all my cousins, and I wondered who he was talking about, and I wanted to make sure he wasn't talking about me. But my grandfather cared about his grandchildren. Pray about your grandchildren. It is so vital. There's so many people want to take your grandchildren and lead them away from God. Pray for your grandchildren and your children. I remember missing the school bus. Devotions came first. I remember Dad inviting in the DHIA tester. <coughs> For breakfast and he would set through devotions and I, he didn't participate but he, he endured it but I'm sure it spoke to his stony heart an old order lady that would come and help my mom sometimes when we she had babies and she would sit out in the kitchen while we went into the living room but I know it it spoke to her one day we was having we have our family prayers around the kitchen table and the door coming in is right there. I looked up from our prayers, and there was the dairy guy from Clemson University. And he quickly ducked away from the door. And I wondered what he went to work and told his co-workers that, that day about this 
little family out there in the country that was praying. We didn't do it to be observed, but I hope it spoke to his heart. Your children should ask what's wrong. Something's not right. Should you be tempted to skip? Pray. Learn to be specific with your family prayers. The children as they go to school. Missionaries you know of. The needs of the day. The unsaved. And I could go on and on. I'd like to read you a testimony. Doest faithfully whatever thou doest. 3 John 5. Timid and modest Christians sometimes omit family devotions in the presence of distinguished visitors, and it is a sore trial for Christian mothers who maintain a family altar to lead the devotions before strangers. The following incident may stimulate some fainting heart to fidelity. Ten years ago, when I was an unconverted man, I boarded in the family of a pi- yeah, in the family of a pious woman whose husband was not a Christian. There was a daughter of 19, another daughter of 14, and a son of 10. Every morning after breakfast, I heard the humble woman gather her family in the kitchen and read them a chapter in the Bible, and then as I could not help but listening, there was a peculiarity of service which mystified me. At last one day I asked if I might remain. She hesitated. Her daughter blushed, but said that I could do so if I really desired it. So I sat down with the rest, and they gave me a testament, and we all read. And then we kneeled on the floor, and that mother began her prayer audibly for her dear ones there, her husband, herself, and then pausing a moment as if to gather all of her energies or to wing on her faith, uttered a tender and affectionate supplication for me. She closed, and her daughter began to pray. Poor girl, she was afraid of me. I was from college. I was her teacher. But she asked a blessing as usual. And then came the other daughter, and at last the son, the youngest of the circle, who only repeated the Lord's Prayer, and then added one petition of his own. His amen was said, but no one arose. I knew on the instant that they were waiting for me, and I, poor, prayerless I, had no word to say. It almost broke my heart, and I hurried from the room, desolate and guilty. A few weeks passed, and I asked their permission to come in once more, and then I prayed too, And I thank my ever-present Savior for the new hope in my heart, the new song on my lips. And it is a great thing to remember that there is a gospel as the law, provision not only for thy son, thy daughter, thy maidservant, thy manservant, but also even for the stranger within thy gates. Now I want to reminisce about the last 50 years. I'm not that old, but well, I'm over 50. Men in women's roles, dating, courtship, a lot of this has changed. Even though we serve the same God, we read the same Bible, and if we don't, we should. 
We live in a generation where there's mobility beyond the beliefs. There's communication. We talk, we text, we, we see people and friends and family all over the world with our smartphones and Skype and those kind of things. There's more free time, and that sometimes causes stress too. There's stress in our churches, stress in our homes. I have, some years I teach doctrine of the church at Bible school, and one year there was a, a nice class of students from across the United States, and the first day I said, how many of you all have had a good church experience? And only one hand went up. And that told me that was a barometer of the health of our Anabaptist churches. The young people were disillusioned. They weren't happy how their parents and their church leaders were having church. In our homes, many men have become passive in their leadership and they shirk their role as women sometimes become more aggressive and the children become frustrated and angry. Too many times in the past, the standards for courtship was left up to the young lady. And when the young woman was required to set the standard, and that will be carried over into marriage, to the control of the marriage, and that often is very destructive. And when the lady has to be the leader in control and the leadership of the, of the courtship, and the standards of courtship that carries into marriage of who will be in charge and who sets the standards. And as the young wife will start to express some level of unhappiness, the husband tries to make her happy at all costs. and He may splurge on her with gifts and vacations and maybe more than they can afford. And now she's really in charge. She knows how to make her husband do things for her. It is the father's responsibility to manage and set the tone for discipline. Fathers need to command respect by example, not demand for respect for authority. At this point, it's not unusual to find the man hiding in his occupation, their truck, their school, the barn, the shop. You know, they stay longer and longer because they just don't like to deal with the pressures at home. Sometimes these men are called into church leadership, but they are not in charge of their leadership at home. They are controlled by their wives, and this too is disastrous. I've seen that, where the husband is expected to shoot the spitwads that his, his wife made. It doesn't go over good in church. Often the sons of domineering mothers are spineless or wimpy and not well adjusted. We are not a, far, a church made up of farmers anymore. We lead different lives in many different ways. Even the way the church is administered is different than it used to be. I had a, a bishop friend who's in his 90s now. He told me, he said, most of our church was, work was done in the back of somebody's barn. All the ministers were farmers, and during the day they'd meet somewhere and hammer out the, the decisions of church. And now the ministers go off to their jobs and punch a time clock, and it's difficult sometimes to get together. 
It's different. I didn't say it's bad, it's different. And we need to learn to work within that framework. Another issue that's different is a lot of children never see what their dad does. He goes off to work and they know he works over here at this place, but what does he do? It's hard for them to grasp that their dad is productive. The check is automatic deposit, he's gone, but what does he do? And so it's important for those dads to come home and help their children see that he is the breadwinner and how he does it, and they understand that what he's doing is for their good. One of the greatest responsibilities that men and fathers have is to protect their families from spiritual harm. Beware of the influences on your home. It's tough with the internet, smartphones and tablets. It's tough. There seems to be a huge interest among men to become obsessed or absorbed in collegiate and professional sports and NASCAR racing. It will sap your spiritual vitality and lower your awareness or involvement in the kingdom building constructive things that you should be doing with your family. Um, these uh, passive sports where we observe and are not involved, but become very addicting. They're not good for father-son relationships. I talked a little bit the other night about movies, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, movies have changed. When I was a boy, there was three young men in our church went into Harrisonburg and the movie theater was on Court Square there by Jess's lunch, a hot dog stand, and they were waiting out on the sidewalk to get their tickets to see Ben-Hur. Well, what is Ben, you know what Ben-Hur is? Most of you have seen it. They got churched for watching Ben-Hur, okay? I remember a, a, a local old order girl was in town that night and saw them standing out on the sidewalk and told their preacher. And I remember these boys having to get up in church for watching Ben-Hur. I've never seen Ben-Hur, but I guess it's innocent. My point is, just because you can watch it at home in the privacy of your home doesn't make it right. Somehow we got this idea that because we're not going to the theater, that anything we can download and look at ourselves, it's open season. The number of young people, and that's not just young people, who have become lured into secular movies is huge. Even the plainest groups where people have access to digital data and phones, tablets, and computers are watching them. Why? To escape reality, to relax and put your mind and conscience in neutral and drift along. It seems interesting and exciting. Most are violent, most are disrespectful, most have immodesty and immorality, and most use vile language. And even if you could get past all the violence, the immorality, past the empty foolishness and folly of their humor, how can you listen to them and take our Savior's name in vain. You cannot do these things and be a godly person. Remember 
The world standing for rating movies has nothing, has nothing at all to do or nothing in common with God's holy standard. I don't care if it's G or PG, that don't mean God or people of God. That's the world standard. It's not God's standard. Dating and purity. Young people, I, I, I just love young people. We had a house full of teenagers and they're gone and I, I kind of miss them, sort of. They come in and get Grace's food though, you know. Are you ready to date? Young men, are you willing to be absolutely responsible in your dating relationship? That you will protect the innocence, protect the reputation, and guard the character of that young lady whose friendship you desire. Young lady, are you willing to submit to that kind of leadership and never compromise your purity or you lose or use your feminine charm in a way that would cause a young man to stumble and be an ineffective, ineffective leader. Again, sons must learn by preteen, early teens, that they are to be the protectors of their mothers and no longer hankering for what their mothers can give them. From being taken care of by mother to taking care of mother. They must learn to protect and care for their sisters and every girl they meet, whether a real live person or a picture in a magazine or on a screen or wherever and whatever. Every young man should learn that whenever he sees a girl or a lady that he is responsible to protect her. And when men learn to see themselves as protectors of women in their lives and who they are responsible for, they will not see young ladies and women as someone who can provide something nice for them, but rather someone we are to respect and protect. And when we get this across to Christian young people, boys and girls alike, they will quit looking at porn. They will quit looking at chick flicks and other secular movies. Again, mothers, release your sons to open your arms and let your boys grow up and mature and allow dad to lead them into physical and spiritual manhood. And finally, dating. My generation dated in the 60s and 70s. Casual dating, there was some. I, I, I can think of a boy in our neighborhood that that uh, went to EMC and they had a little game going there in the late 60s where the guys would ask the girls out and they would see how few a dates they could have before they'd break up and see if the girl would cry. I wish I could wring his neck. Girls' hearts are not to be played with. That's terrible. But that was not the norm. There was a lot of change came into the church and into dating relationships during the 80s and 90s. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. A date is an appointment with a person. In my day, there was a great chasm, a big gulf between where the guy was and asking a young lady for the privilege of spending an evening with her. Doing so of something of mutual interest. You 
called the girl's house, you asked her if you all wanted to do something and you both of you enjoyed or you, he hoped she enjoyed it. And she was free to say no. The risk was pretty much all on the guy's part. There was instant clarity. And then she would tell her parents that so-and-so would be coming around, you know. And, but it was mostly good. It, it kind of worked. They were good experiences. Now there is often little or no reserve. People start texting when they're 13. And texting has its place, so that's not my point. And then you got Facebook and other social media where people, there's the loss of, of social distinction and boundaries. You know, you start out in the youth group as one big happy family, and you know, you don't date girls in your youth group. Uh, that's not cool. You have to go somewhere else. And children start out in preschool and vacation Bible school, Sunday school, Christian school, and Bible school. and the barriers are broke down. There's no reserve. It's not healthy. In my day, if you wanted to talk with a girl, you called her up, you made arrangements. It worked pretty good. Then in the late 80s and 90s, a lot of influence came from larger Protestantism. You had Bill Gothard and his Old Testament patriarchal teachings and the whole homeschool movement. <laughs> where daddy is God and he tried to totally rewrite the dating culture. You had to date the dad first. And so right away, you know, the dad became the wicked wolf to the boy that wanted to have access to his daughter. I could tell you a lot of stories. I don't have time. And then we have I kissed gay, dating goodbye. And um, yeah, you know, some of those guys probably like to date now. It totally destroyed lines of of clarity and leadership roles in dating. Girls were elevated to a princess status, but we never thought to bring the young men up that he needs to be a prince as well, and many young fellows are treated like a bottom-feeding slime sucker. There's nobody's good enough to marry my daughter. I get so tired of that, and I want to say that for every godly woman, there's just as many godly young men. I can think of a, an acquaintance I had that he treated all potential boyfriends. He gave them this demeaning questionnaire. And he, he always reminded them that they were never good enough. But let me tell you, his chickens came home to roost one time. His, his daughter is divorced. Because that son-in-law got tired of it. I can think of dads who just seem to relish grinding potential suitors of their daughters into some kind of low-life form. Don't do that. Be their friend. Invite them into your home. Encourage them. Build them up. You want a good friendship with potential son-in-laws. Start protecting the girl. You know, we started protecting girls and placing them on this elevated throne. But we never brought the young men along in the process. I only had one girl. And um, she had some different suitors. And there was never a boy asked that I didn't... I never told him no. I'd, I'd tell him... 
Sure, ask her because you're a Christian. Uh, there was some that asked that I knew um, didn't have the chance of a snowball and a hot skeleton, but <laughs> I never told them they couldn't ask. And finally, Jason Schrock came one day, and I don't have time to tell you that story, but I did write him a letter. I told him when he came over I wanted to talk to him a little bit, and then I started feeling guilty. When he comes to my house, I want him to, to have a good time and not have this reserve that he had to meet with me. So I wrote him a letter, and I says, perhaps this is just a small part of it. Perhaps you may wonder why a father may seem so protective of his daughter. From my perspective and probably your dad's also, I care about my grandchildren. Will the faith that has been entrusted to me from my father and grandfather be passed on through my children to the next generation? That is something I care deeply about. We've spent 22 years trying to teach our daughter how to live a godly life and a life of service to others and some careless young man can come along and play with her heart, and rather than affirm her commitment, they can in just a few short months undo all a parent has tried to teach. Jason, remember I said yes. You can have her friendship so you know that I trust you. But it will be your responsibility to lead out in the spiritual part of your relationship. Learn to pray and read the scriptures together early in your friendship. It is time well spent. It makes the girl feel comfortable knowing that she won't be the one in charge of the family spiritual leadership later on if God directs into a more permanent relationship. Men are called to lead, and women are so good at affirmation, nurturing, and discerning when something is not right. So don't shirk your responsibility and make them lead. That is our job and not in an authoritarian or an uncaring way, but in love and compassion. And I'm sure that your father has modeled it well to you and your brother. It is your responsibility to defend the moral high ground. Again, girls tend to follow our example, but never make them have to say no. I have lived long enough to have seen many young couples climb the cliffs of passion only to, be de only to be dashed down on the rocks of regret. After you all become a little more comfortable with each other, set some reasonable standards for physical conduct and never cross them. If a man compromises his standards before marriage, a woman can never be quite sure or feel safe after marriage, remembered that he dishonored our courtship standards so what's going to keep him from dishonoring his marriage vows? Young men. I know a young man that prayed for a girl for three years only to be reduced to a pulp by her dad. That's wrong. Another boy I know that waited nine months for clarity, and at the end of nine months, he got a text and said no. In my generation, it took less than five minutes. You knew if you were on or you were off. 
Some girls are getting asked over and over again, but some of the most godly, wonderful girls with good training that have demonstrated the tremendous potential for mothering and homemaking and faithful wives aren't getting asked at all. Something is very wrong. And I believe that commercialism of our society may have rubbed off on us. We think that if you want something, you can get it. If you want credit, or you can borrow it, or you can find it on the internet. If you want it, you can get it. And sometimes I think that's how we go about our courtship relationships. I'm 59. Time has allowed me to see the disastrous results of those who have made choices influenced a lot by the outward, clothes, style, and status, and many of those have reaped a harvest of tears. You know, nobody wants to post a girlfriend on the internet that, that isn't hot, but what kind of a spirit? You see, when, this whole social media thing puts tremendous pressure on young couples, you know, to be over the top, and I think it's tragic. I can think of a woman that I know from southern Ontario who's from, um, they call them Markhams, which would be Horning or Whistler. She said in her youth group, there was 200, uh, in her age bracket, there was 200 young people her age. But the young men went after other girls rather than the ones who were faithful and committed to spiritual obedience in their church. Fifty of those girls were never married. That's wrong. These boys went to town and got babes, you know. That's wrong. The same thing happens to some young men. Turned down four and five times, they can't get a date. Have we decided that everything has to be perfect and over-the-top wedding? just the right setting and location, where the wedding becomes a display or a, or a performance, not the carrying out of the will of God and producing new families, participating in the ordinance of the church, the pressure to go out and outdo the other, and the last one. And I think social media has become that venue to brag and display. <coughs> Men, do you have the hearts of your children? Men who can choose what is right. Men who are willing to stand alone. And if the whole world is against you, can you as a dad, could your wife and children count on you to do what is right? Uh, my dad is no longer living. Uh, some of you knew my dad, and people thought we had the most rigid and strict dad that we possibly couldn't have fun, uh, but we did. And as I look back at those children who thought we had this tyrant of a dad, their lives are often miserable because their dads didn't take leadership. Soon after um, our son was killed, my wife was at the doctor's office to the female side getting a checkup and the head doctor come in and he asked um, the midwife there um, is there anything wrong with Mrs. Heatwall besides being married to a, a Heatwall 
and uh, they laughed, and he says, you know, that Mr. Enos and that Mr. Wendell and Mr. Carl, they're the most stone and stoic, stoic men I've ever met. Well, in response to that, what's so funny about going to the doctor and getting naked? I don't, you know, some things aren't funny. But anyway, that was his evaluation of my brother and my dad and myself. But dads, take leadership. You only have one shot around. You can't redo it. God bless you.